Well, if you haven't noticed, I took a short break from podcasting to take care of some pressing things in my professional and personal life. But uh, it was nice to get away, take care of those things. And now I'm ready to refocus on our bi-weekly Young Farmer podcast. And if you've forgotten, my name is Chris Torres, your host. So I recently traveled to Eastern Long Island and met with this dynamic guy who is the co-owner of Sangley Farms, which is this year's Agricultural and Environmental Award winner. And, and this guy's name is William Lee, the third generation owner of the business. And he manages 100 crops on 100 acres with his father, Fred. So we talked about his growing philosophy and how environmental sustainability has led to his business growing, thriving in an area that's more known for its glitzy Hamptons community than really its long history of farming. It was a fun interview. We got dirty. I ate plenty of vegetables and, uh, and we had a really nice chat right afterwards. So here's my conversation with William Lee and thanks again for listening. So we were actually out in the fields out there you were cutting you know you name it and you were out down there cutting it um and you are this year's you are this year's aem winner here in new york state yeah it's a big honor um thank you so much uh we went out in the field and we were cutting down a lot of fall brassicas uh the cruciferous crops are doing really well right now with this wet weather um and they're at full maturity so we went out we hacked down some hybrid cauliflower some brussels sprouts uh we even pulled some root crops like daikon and rutabaga uh but those those type of veggies are performing really well and um i think a lot of it has to do with our soil and and how well we're taking care of the land and um it's just a really big honor to have uh been recognized um with our growing practices and how we do things and with the Leopold Foundation, you got $10,000. You got the $10,000 award. And you're using that, you hope to use that for sort of a unique project that you hope to do on the farm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, we've begun the first prototype designs on a sediment catchment system. Um, and we, we had hoped that this concrete ramp um, with a green grass runway uh, could help provide uh, some some reinstallation of this silt and sediment that washes away from farmland back to the farm. Uh, and so with this catchment um, concrete facility, uh, we would be able to store uh, surface water and then return the surface water back to the farm, either in a drip system uh, or just by overhead sprinkler. Um, and reapply the nitrogen and also catch the sediment, which is um, kind of moving off of the farm on a heavy downpour or a heavy rain day. Um, so this uh, soil and water invention is an innovative way to, to preserve some of the working farms and also uh, to preserve our groundwater here on Long Island, which is a very fragile resource being that we have underground aquifers. Yeah. Now, this AEM award really, really focuses on environmental practices. Really focuses on the farmer who, um, on farmers who really are, are serious about their environment, about their effects on the environment, and things that they do to improve the environment for the farm. Tell me some of the things that that you do beyond that, um, that 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 you and your father um, do to to protect the environment, and how that works into making your farm more sustainable. Um, I would say that our biggest. Uh, and most renowned practice would be um, resting 
a percent of the farm um, and utilizing summer cover crops. Um, it's also evident that the diversity within our product line and the diversity in the selection of the vegetables that we grow ends up creating a better microbiology in the soil. Um, being organic doesn't hurt either. Um, so when we till weeds back into the ground, we're increasing organic matter and ultimately increasing our soil moisture holding capacity, um, which will in turn create less of a need to irrigate and then, of course, preserve our fragile and um, non-limitless supply of water. So ultimately, I think it's a combination of our growing practices, but um, through cover cropping and crop diversification, we're able to achieve some of our, our best environmental practices. Mm -hmm. And you do 100 varieties uh, vegetables, right? Yeah, we like to say we do 100 varieties on 100 acres, um, which is tough when you're trying to squeeze in um, all the different crops. And there's usually a little bit of an argument at the beginning of the season as to where we're putting the tomatoes and where we're putting the peppers and will the zucchini fit. Um, and it's hard to maintain those buffer zones and those resting areas when we're, um, we're chewing through ground and eating up space as fast as um, we can plant the crops. And so having a uh, proper, you know, three to five year rotation uh, for things like tomatoes or cruciferous vegetables um, in order to combat the disease without spraying every other day. Um, is a big tactic that we like to sit down and really hash out at the beginning of the year. Um, and it takes a lot of proper management. And so uh, being a third-generation farmer and having my father's strategy uh, behind the commercial growing practices combined with a new-age uh, organic and environmentally friendly uh, growing method, uh, we're able to create a real nice, perfectly sized-scale combination of uh, sustainable growing practices while also producing a diversified uh, product line. Now tell me what you start with every single year. What are the crops that you start with? Then how does that go through the season and what do you end up with? Well, we like to start our season off with um, asparagus and then we move into sugar snap peas and then strawberries. And um, as you get into uh, the early part of the summer, we'll begin harvesting zucchini. And then um, as you get in through June, a lot of the outdoor lettuces will start popping. And we're doing um, early spring carrots and beets. We're doing radishes. Uh, we have a lot of kale and spinach and arugula. Um, and then you get into the summer crops. You get into the peppers, the eggplant, the tomatoes. Um, we really start seeing uh, an abundance of nightshades. And we also have a lot of melons, cantaloupe, honeydew, watermelon, seedless watermelon, um, which is one of our favorite crops. And then um, as you round the corner into September, you start to begin to see some of those brassicas and those cruciferous, like what we were harvesting today. Mm -hmm. So you'll see the Napa cabbages and you'll see the broccoli and the cauliflower and the Brussels sprouts. And then you get into your root, your fall root crops, uh, Korean moo, daikon, rutabaga, um, we have beets, we have carrots again, we do another fall round. Um, and then we do sweet potatoes, potatoes. And um, once we get into this part of the season, uh, the bounty of the summer growing conditions really starts to take shape and the yield on the fall squash and the potatoes uh, begins to fill all the coolers up. And um, it's a really great time of year to come over and have dinner. Absolutely. 
Um, and, and the really interesting thing about you um, that really, I think, sets you apart is the fact that you have several different um, outlets for, for the vegetables and fruits that you actually grow here. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so one of the reasons why we've been able to make it uh, to this third generation of, of growing um, is because we've continued to change uh, and uh, evolve with the needs of our market. Um, so from moving uh, from a commercial wholesale truck farm that supplied Asian vegetables to the Chinese markets. Um, Mostly in Chinatown in New York. Yeah, we sold to Boston, New York, um, Toronto, D.C., anywhere where we um, where there was a large population of restaurants and where we could sell truckloads at a time. Um, and the North American Free Trade Agreement has, has made it difficult for some uh, East Coast and Northeast producers to compete with Mexico. And uh, because of that, I think a lot of the truck farming um, ha- that was so prevalent up to the 80s has now uh, turned the same way we've turned into uh, more of a retail sector. And uh, we're lucky enough to have a great community and a really nice um, following here for the organic veggies. And um, being that we're organic and we're selling directly to the consumer, our retail farm stand has um, has really taken an uptick. Now, now that change, would that, would that have started with your father, Fred? Um, my father and mother um, both... Uh, had made the decision to go organic and then uh, begin selling on the side of the road. Um, the first thing that we sold on the side of the road was actually uh, watermelon. Uh, my father told me if I grew them and I took care of them, I could bring them up front and uh, put them on the side of the road and sell them. And that's what we did. And then we begun selling cut flower bunches and then lettuce. And then we sold some bok choy. And then all of a sudden we had a seven-day-a-week farm stand. And now we're making soup and pesto and dressing and all the different accessories and sweet potato sliders and anything we can make out of the fresh veggies that we grow um, to bolster the season and, um, you know, to keep our community well fed. Yeah, so you have a farm kitchen here. And is that open seven days a week? Uh, Yeah, we're open seven days a week up until the dead of the winter. And like I said, providing for the community brings us to our third area that we um, uh, have an outlet of sales, and that's our CSA program. And the CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, which is a very important aspect of what we do. Um, Our members pay at the beginning of the year, and they receive 25 weeks of veggies throughout the season. Um, We're able to give them a wholesale uh, discount rate, uh, in order to get the veggies all year uh, because they put their money up front. And then we're able to use the money to buy seed and peat moss and fertilizer and pay for, you know, 8 to 16 weeks of labor in the spring to kind of get jump-started. And then uh, we can get off to the races and begin uh, growing all the veggies that everyone gets to enjoy all summer long. Mm-hmm. How many members do you have in the CSA? Uh, we have a couple hundred members, and that has been a really nice addition to our spring budget Um, and it helps us plan in the fields if we know that we have uh, a few hundred people that are guaranteed going to need that lettuce and going to need a head of broccoli um, we can plan our transplant line and our greenhouse production and our seeding Uh, we can staff accordingly we can harvest the right amount Um, and then we can also provide our retail outlets 
with the bounty and the excess um, after we make sure that the CSA has been harvested for. You have sort of like an interesting, an interesting story about how you ended up back on the farm full time with your, with your mother and father. Tell me a little bit about how you ended up back on the farm. Um, well, I went to Fairfield Business School. And uh, after graduating from Fairfield, I worked a little bit in the city. and um, New York City. Yep, in New York. And uh, I'd done a little bit of finance with UBS, some investment banking, and then a little bit of insurance at Northwestern Mutual Financial. And um, coming back to the farm, I realized that the responsibility and the destiny that I had to grow food was too real uh, to do anything else except help out on the farm. And so I had uh, made the easy decision of uh, following my instinct and, uh, and sticking to the seeding and the disking and the cover cropping and the harvesting that was uh, just abound here at Sang Lee. So do you think that it was, do you think that it was something that, that you've always had ever since you were a child? Well, I grew up on the farm, so um, it was something that was I, I've been accustomed to, and it's something that's familiar, and it's also, I think, you know, to a certain degree, characteristic for humans to enjoy the harvest uh, or to understand the, you know, the hands-on approach to the work that we have here on the farm. So, was that a process? You know, leaving leaving your former career. I mean, how how long of a process was that to decide to? to come back. I mean, you know, t- tell me a little bit about the discussions. I'm sure you probably had discussions with your mother and father about coming back and all that sort of thing. I mean, tell me a little bit about how that process, what that process looked like. Well, I'd worked on the farm my whole childhood and uh, growing up through, you know, middle school and high school. And then even worked on the farm in the summers, uh, you know, while at college. And then only in the later part of, you know, business school did I decide to uh, to do an internship in the city and then to work in the city after school. Um, so it didn't last too long. Um, clearly, the farm responsibilities that I had um, were always here and um, began, you know, began to become more overpowering with my time management to the point where it didn't make sense anymore to jump on the train and go to New York, not at least during the growing season. So uh, each winter that came around, I would decide, well, am I going to do something else or should I get a career or should I try something different? And uh, eventually the last year, I, uh, I got my captain's license and um, I have a commercial towing endorsement, which is still renewed up to this point. Um, so I have uh, dreams of treasure hunting in the Caribbean, uh, which are still uh, out there, but... Um, <laughs> Ultimately, I work enough in the season now that uh, just taking a little bit of time off in the winter is enough for me, and I don't have to search for that career choice any longer. You know, and take it take it from me, I was just out in the field with him for about an hour, and you were so proud when you were picking out, when you were cutting up with your with your pocket knife, the broccoli, the cheddar broccoli, as you call it, all those different vegetables, you know, just... just I mean, it, it, it's just the, the passion for, for what you do, I mean, just really showed out there. I mean, you were really, really proud of the things that you were growing out there. I mean, I couldn't even, boy, I couldn't even imagine if you actually went out and decided to become a treasure hunter. It seems like farming is in your blood and this is going to be it for you. Well, my grandfather said, if you want to be successful, you have to eat, sleep, breathe your business. And, um, you know, at Sangley Farms, we like to consider what we do 
um, our passion and we like to do it with the best quality possible. Um, and I think most people that know our product, um, can attest to that. And, um, obviously going out to the field, whether it be on a wet, soggy rain day in the mud or, you know, a beautiful sunny day, um, there's enough beautiful product out there that, uh, it'll bring a smile to your face. Farmland transition, at least with our readership is, is a topic that always comes up. Um, can you tell me a little bit about about how you worked on your farmland transition with your with your parents? Are your your parents are still involved in the business? Then I mean, how is that? I mean, how how is that shaping up? Um, yeah, my father is still very much involved in the business uh, at sixty five years old, and I'll be thirty five next month. So um, we're still very much in the transitional process. We are developing and continuing to develop. Um, a rock-solid plan so that the land asset and the business um, can be treated differently and, and um, we can begin to make that transition a little bit more evident. As of right now, both of us are involved in the business to, to enough of a degree that those questions um, are you know, still out to be answered in completion. However, um, it's something that you have to continue to work on uh, on a continual basis. And I don't think that, um, no matter how good of a plan you have, um, it'll take away from that, um, that day to day working atmosphere or that relationship that you have, um, with the other people who are involved in the business, whatever family member they may be. And, um, you know, just as any relationship is, whether it be your girlfriend or your wife or, um, somebody involved in your family business, it's a, um, it's a constant um, give and take and, and a learning experience, and it's something that you have to continue uh, to develop and evolve on. Long Island, driving up here, I don't, I don't get up here that often, but um, you know, Long Island, especially on, on an eastern Long Island, on the North Fork, you know, just driving up to the place this morning, th- there was just a lot of diversity. There was the one thing that I really noticed was just the diversity of farms. Passed by some Angus cattle, Passed by a lot of turf farms, passed by a lot of wineries, vineyards, all that sort of thing. And then you, of course, have your vegetable farming. Talk to me a little bit about that diversity up here and, uh, and why it's so um, advantageous for you, for your business, that you have all this diversity. Plus, you know, you're within striking distance of a lot of people and how that, and, and how that benefits your operation. Um, well, we're, we're less than two hours outside New York City, so we're within reach of one of the largest food hubs on the East Coast um, and in the country and, and most likely uh, to some degree in the world. And um, what that means for us is there's always a sales outlet, um, whether you need to go to Brooklyn um, or Hunts Point, um, whether or not that's the best price for your product is a whole nother story. Um, and so... I think as you drive east on eastern Long Island, you see the diversity in agriculture, and you realize that Suffolk County has historically been one of the largest agricultural counties in New York State. Big potato areas. Yeah, it's, it's easy to see why, um, being in the proximity that we are to New York, why we've historically produced this much food. Um, and you know, being that out West and, and down South are producing more and more food at a more effective, efficient rate or at a lower cost. Some of the farms here are turning to other specialty food, um, venues like, like meat production or, um, 
you know, small specialty food production. Um, but you're also seeing the residential pressures and, and you're seeing the turf fields and sod farms, which are providing for those, um, for those, uh, real estate and, and residential development projects. So, um, I sit on South Town's land preservation committee and, uh, we preserve, uh, working farms and, and open space. And, uh, one of the biggest, um, issues that we face is uh, residential pressure. Um, and we're purchasing the development rights with um, CPF money, which is Community Preservation Fund capital from South Old Town. And um, those farms will be preserved with an easement uh, for all eternity. And uh, what's nice about that is we're removing the right to subdivide that land, um, which will hopefully... Um, if we do it properly, preserve agriculture. Mm-hmm. Now, those two things are not one and the same. And so um, at this point in history, we're working very closely to make sure that those working farms or the farms that are potentially being preserved or have been preserved maintain the capability to do the things they need to do in order to stay sustainable. And whether or not, whether or not that means attaching uh, a reserved lot or a development area to that farm and making sure that that development area stays attached to the other property tax map mm-hmm. um, so that an owner operator can live there or run a retail operation. These are some of the things that are coming up where the farms have to be designed so that they can make it through the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're working to make sure that that's the case so that you will continue to see that landscape when you drive this this way from New York, sure, and, and it's and it's not really about a and, and landscape is one thing, but just to to keep the agricultural community alive, to keep that spirit alive, is very important too. Yeah, I mean, I'm a third generation farmer, and I don't know how many more third generation farmers there will be on Eastern Long Island. Um, I don't know how many will go fourth, fifth, sixth generation. Um, it's just. A tougher and tougher business and as you get into um, the sustainability aspect of the business and once you sell the development rights it's a matter of keeping the business afloat and the land values are one thing um, but running a business an agricultural business no matter what form of agriculture you're in um, doesn't exactly have the highest profit margins mm-hmm. and so um, it's going to be uh, a test of time and fate for those who continue to run farms and how they're able to do it. You know, just sitting with you for a couple hours, being up here on the farm, you seem like you're a pretty progressive guy, you know, with some of the ideas you have out there on the land and business-wise, you know, some of the ideas you have business-wise. Look in your crystal ball a little bit and just, you know, sort of, can you predict, you know, five, ten years from now, what you think Sangley Farms is going to look like and what sort of things you might have to do or you're already thinking of doing in order to ensure that this farm survives in the long term if you have children or, you know, whatever? Um, Well, I think we brushed over this topic earlier. Um, We had discussed how we're going to make it uh, through the next generation. And um, part of the the reason um, we've been sustainable is because we've been able to evolve our business model. And I think um, we'll continue to do that. And if I had to guess... Within the next five to ten years, we're going to um, cater to people who are interested 
in having their own uh, estate garden or having their own uh, growing facility or developing a greenhouse in their backyard instead of just having uh, an open grass uh, area. And um, I really am beginning to see people who want to grow their own food. And um, I'm thinking that uh, people are going to want the education and they're going to want the, the know-how and they're going to want to buy plants um, in order to keep their household sustainable. As an aside, um, we had COVID-19, obviously, and you weren't too far away from one of the hardest hit areas in the country with COVID-19. How did that affect your business? How did that affect, in particular, your kitchen business? Right. So as I was just saying, the, uh, the aspect of people keeping their own household sustainable or having the things that they need in their freezer or in their cabinet or in their cupboard when something like this, uh, a pandemic approaches or a Y2K happens, um, is something that people in our lifetime have lived through multiple times already. And um, it's not uncommon uh, to think that we might have another one. Yeah. Um, or there could be something else that's bound to happen. Um, and if that is the case, how will my family survive? And how will my friends and my relatives get through this? Who are they going to be calling uh, for the generator? And who has gas? And uh, where are the tomato uh, sauce preserves from the summer? And did we pickle enough things? Um, and so... We, we're going to begin to uh, start to teach people how to ferment cabbage. And um, we're going to continue teaching people and children, whether it be at the summer camp or uh, floral classes uh, or herb seminars, how to stay healthy, preserve food, and um, become more sustainable in their own lifestyles, whether it be from composting um, or growing your own garden or having a small greenhouse in order to make it through the winter without shipping food from across the world to yourself. Um, those are the type of things I think that if we um, continue to approach from an educational and community standpoint that we will uh, receive support of and um, be able to uh, provide for people. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, 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 you know, I, I totally believe that. And, uh, you know, I've done many podcast interviews and, and it just keeps coming up. The same thing keeps coming up. You know, this pandemic came through here. It was very, very bad. But at the same time, you know, it really, I think, taught people a new appreciation for locally grown, new appreciation for local farming. And uh, hopefully, hopefully this is, you know, the beginning of a, of a brand new trend, a brand new era of uh, really successful local farms, and you are at the forefront of that. So thank you very much, Will. I appreciate it, and uh, congratulations again on your award. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks again to William and Fred Lee for having me up there on their farm in beautiful eastern Long Island. Also, thanks a lot to Anne-Marie Calabro with the Soil and Water Conservation District. She helped arrange the interview and the visit, and uh, this podcast wouldn't have been possible, wouldn't have been possible without the help of Anne-Marie Calabro. My name is Chris Torres. Thank you for listening to the American Agriculturist Young Farmer Podcast.